called Constant Worship. Um, and so if you want to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, I'll have it on the screen for you as well. Um, but uh, we're going to go back to the beginning of this passage so we can get back to the, where we're at this morning. But, uh, so some of this will be a review from last week. Um, last week we talked about Simeon, and he was the guy that was there when Jesus was brought to the temple to be presented to the Lord. And, uh, and today we're going to talk about Anna, who was also there. So we're going to learn about that in a moment. So let's look at Luke chapter 2 together, starting at verse 22. It says, And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of two turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, who, of the tribe of Asher. He, she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. So, last week we discussed Simeon. This morning, let us examine Anna together. So, I'll go back to verse 36. There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. So first of all, it says she was a prophetess. Now, there aren't very many prophetesses listed in Scripture, but she joins the likes of Miriam, the sister of Aaron, who led the women in a chorus celebrating the Lord's triumph over Israel at the Red Sea. She joins Deborah and some others that are noted in Scripture, but there are not very many prophetesses listed in Scripture. Note that Luke includes some further identification of Anna. We considered last week that Simeon might have been so well known that no further description of him was needed beyond that he was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. We guessed at who his father and grandfather may have been, but Luke did not record that information for us. So we don't know for absolute certain, but for Anna, he did. He tells us Anna was the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. 
And I will mention briefly that Asher was one of what were so-called ten lost tribes of Israel. However, there remained a remnant of them who remembered their lineage and kept record of it. And so Anna was part of that remnant. From time to time, it's good to remind ourselves of some principles of reading and studying and understanding the Bible. Uh, There are several basic rules to do a proper job of Bible study, and I'm not going to give you the entire course at this time. Uh, But let me remind you of a couple things that we try to keep in mind as we go through Scripture. First, when reading Scripture, we must never take an interpretation the original author never intended. Uh, This is very important because since all of us have a sin nature as a result of the fall, we tend towards selfishness, don't we? And a result of this selfishness is sometimes manifested in our insistence to pull the Scripture immediately into application that applies to us. We want to go there right away sometimes. We want to understand it in our own context and right now. And some people might think to themselves, oh, don't waste my time telling me about what Israel was like at that time or about who the author was or who he was writing to. I don't care about that. I just want to know what it has to do with me, a lot of people might say. And many preachers, aware of that desire, and in order to please their listeners, they'll skip over some important parts of study and move immediately to application, which has the result of pleasing some people, but at the same time leaving them with an incomplete understanding of the Scriptures. I don't think anyone who preaches regularly is not tempted to do this at times, They want to make their congregation happy. Well, good news for you. I don't want you to make you you happy. I want to deliver to you the word of God in a whole and complete way. We need a well-balanced diet, right? And when it comes to God's word, we need not only to consume calories that give us energy for the moment, we need the protein and the vitamins and the minerals that build our whole spiritual selves so that we can move forward in spiritual health. Besides, I love you too much to simply make everything easy to swallow for you. So as we study Scripture, and we must never take an, uh, an interpretation of the original uh, script that the author did not intend. And along with that, we also must not take a meaning that the original hearers or readers of that passage could have taken. Now, in this case, Luke is simply recording an event. And while we will draw some lessons from this, it will not be a lesson that one reading this at the time Luke wrote it would not also have been able to glean. Does that make sense? So we don't want to learn something that whoever read this in the first place never would have got out of it. Because if we're doing that, we're not doing the right job of Bible study. So Anna is a prophetess. She's the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. We must assume then that since Luke took the time to add these identifying descriptors, that this is not allegory. It's not a nice story that became a legend. When very specific details like this are given, if we do put ourselves in the shoes or in the sandals of the original readers, we can see that someone who wanted to try and refute Luke's gospel would have had a much more difficult task if he if it would be very hard work for someone to disprove this uh if it were true because he's actually giving the names not only the lady but her relatives and who she was from 
and the age. I mean, it narrows down the exact person pretty well. So he specifically gives many details. She was a prophetess from a certain family in a certain tribe, and she was advanced in years. And she had been married for seven years as a young lady, and her husband had died, and she had never remarried. So she lived the rest of her life as a widow. Then verse 37 says, Then as a widow until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Some translations say something like she lived another 84 years after her husband died, and which would have meant that she was well over 100 years old, but it seems more likely she was 84 years old, not well over 100. And the reasons have a lot to do with how translators have wrestled with this text over the many uh, years of the church. But a general consensus is that this means she was 84 So we should keep in mind that 84 is a good old age even today, but in that day and time, average life expectancy was much lower than it is today. And there were two ways to look at life expectancy. One is the life expectancy if you got through childhood, because a lot of children didn't even make it through childhood. Um, But if you made it through childhood, then you had a chance of living 40 to 50 years on average. So Anna surpassed this by quite a long shot. Whether she was actually 84 or much older, either way, Luke rightly points out that she was advanced in years. And she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Now, we do not need to take this part literally. Luke is not literally saying she never left the temple. Obviously, she had personal needs, just like we do, so she would have to leave at times and take care of her personal needs. What Luke is driving at is not an absolute statement that she never left the temple, but something more like she never missed a worship service or a prayer meeting. Or in our context today, this would be a true church lady, right? And if you went to the temple, you would see Anna there. When you did see her, she was probably on her knees. And just as Luke could not have meant she never left the temple literally, he also doesn't mean she fasted without ever eating or drinking. There's no implication here that she was somehow supernaturally fed or sustained in that way. However, spiritually, she was sustained, and she did this work in her service to God. Her work, her occupation, her calling was prayer. Verse 38, And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of of Jerusalem. So giving thanks to God was part of Anna's routine. A devout person like her surely would have known how to pray the Psalms, which include adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. In her prayers, she, like Simeon, prayed for the consolation of Israel, that is, for the Christ, for the Messiah to come. And likely Simeon and Anna knew each other. If they were hanging out at the temple all the time, it's unlikely they didn't know each other. And it's a beautiful thing to note that in Luke's gospel, he is always sure to make note of many women who are involved in the story. To Luke, the gospel is for everyone. So naturally, he wants it to be known that in all of this, the story of Jesus, women were ever present and played a vital role. Now, hopefully we have understood somewhat how the author Luke intended his first readers to view these narratives. Let us look now to see what we can glean from this. Anna, after being married only seven years, 
had been left a widow. Now, certainly at that age, she could have remarried. But she chose not to do this. And we don't know the reason. We also do not know what she did for the middle part of her life. We only know for certain what Scripture tells us. And anything else is a guess on our part. Even an educated guess is still a guess. We do know that in these later years, she was a devout servant of God at the temple. She worshipped with fasting and prayer night and day. And without overtly saying so, Luke is commending her devout service to God. She is an example of piety, which simply means a reverent person. She is someone who lived out a life that is devout and dedicated to honoring God. However, this example is not given in the way as to say this is the best way for everyone to worship. Uh, This is something to be cautious of, and perhaps even more so for new Christians. Um, We can look at those before us who seem to be very devout and feel inadequate. Uh, Someone who does secular work may feel inferior to the one whose career is in some sort of ministry. And yet God has not called us all to the exact same thing. His purposes for us as individuals and the church are for his glory. And so he has given to us a variety of gifting and talents. It's easy for us to look at that great example of Anna and think, oh, I could never make it compared to her. I couldn't do that, some people might say. Who else could spend this much time in prayer and service and worship? Each person needs to know their own calling and following their own calling and to serve God with their whole heart and give their talents up for the service of God. But let us be careful that we don't compare or measure our own service uh, in in comparison to what someone else is doing. On the one hand, we could look at Anna and say, well, I am a failure, I can't do enough. And from the other side of it, we could see someone in the church who really isn't doing much for the Lord at all, as far as we can see. And we could think to ourselves, well, compared to that person, I'm doing more than my share. And we can quickly become puffed up, the very thing Scripture warns us not to do. Now, let us talk about Anna as a widow for a moment. Uh, Paul wrote to Timothy a whole paragraph or two on how the church should help widows. Interestingly, Paul makes clear that the church is to honor widows, quote, who are truly widows, and that's in 1 Timothy 5.2. And this may seem at first glance uh, a strange thing to say. Is a widow a true widow or not a true widow? Well, from our perspective, a woman whose husband has died is a widow, right? But Paul makes this clarification not at all to diminish one woman's loss of her husband compared to another, but to assess her need for the church's help. And so let's look at how Paul qualifies those who he refers to as truly widows. 1 Timothy 5.4, If a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. So the first qualification, of course, is a woman whose husband has died, but now Paul says that there's a distinction. If she has family members that are to take care of her, they should. And Paul is not just making this up off the top of his head. He's drawing from his Jewish understanding of what it really means to honor one's parents or grandparents. However, 
Paul also understands that some widows do not have extended family to take care of them. In some cases, maybe the woman moved to live with her husband and he died and neither one has any relatives there. Um, Or her own family was too small and there was no one to take care of her. Or sometimes the family might have just outright refused to take care of her. You know, there was no food stamps in those days, no housing and urban development, no public housing or anything like that. Nothing to help her in those days except for the charity of her family or others. In the church then, Paul wanted it to be done this way, that it was a way for children and grandchildren to learn godliness and that they should understand their responsibility to help widows within their own family. But in Paul's thinking, a true widow, as far as the church had a responsibility, was one who had a true need for help. She didn't have a nest egg. She didn't have a retirement fund. She didn't have anything uh, as daily work or was not able to work. So perhaps Paul was thinking of women like Anna when he wrote in 1 Timothy 5, 5 and 6, She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Notice the contrast. One, a true widow seeks God night and day. The other option is to be self-indulgent, always wanting her own way, which is what self-indulgent people want. Paul goes on to make some points about uh, widows beyond that, uh, such as if someone in the church has a family member that is a widow or other relatives that need help and does not help them, he has denied the faith. Paul also speaks of criteria for a widow to receive financial or physical needs met by the church. In First uh, Timothy 5, 9, and 10, it says, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. So if she's less than 60, she would probably be able to do some sort of physical work, but after that, it would be much harder to work. A true widow to Paul was one who had not been remarried and had done acts of service in the church. Younger, Mary, uh, younger widows were not uh, advised to, get re, uh, to, bec- to remain widows, but Paul actually advised them to be remarried rather than being enrolled as widows in the church. And some of the reasons he gave was uh, that they would be tempted by their own passions and also they could become idle gossips or busy, busybodies. Um, so clearly Paul has drawn from his Jewish understanding to give instructions about widowhood and what that in the church should look like. And I have said all of this simply to point out that Anna certainly would have met Paul's description of a widow. Although Anna is held up by Luke here as an example of piety, he is not making a statement that this is what every woman should do. Remember another lesson of Bible study. Some passages are descriptive, and some are prescriptive. Some can be both descriptive and prescriptive and by looking carefully we can try to discern that this passage generally speaking is descriptive paul is simply describing the person and the event he's not necessarily making a doctrinal statement he's not prescribing certain behavior that has to be done by everyone 
he's commending Anna to us as an example, but, say, but not saying we all have to do the exact same thing. If everybody in the church spent all day praying at the church, no one would be working, and it would not take long before we're all without any help, right? So additionally, uh, she was fasting a lot. That was part of her ministry in the church. He was, she was actually, that's considered ministerial work, actually, prayer and fasting. And so she was ministering to the Lord through prayer and fasting. Um, but fasting, as Calvin pointed out, is only useful to the extent that it aids the earnestness and fervency of prayer. He said that prayer is necessary or required, but fasting is accessory. In other words, uh, it doesn't have any other design other than to aid the prayer. Um, it seems he was saying that unless your fasting makes your prayer better, it's kind of pointless. Many times people fast in a sort of dutiful way that is not really about making their prayer more fervent. If that is the case, they're better off not fasting. And Jesus warned about fasting for the wrong reasons. So if you do fast, be sure you're fasting for the right reasons. I heard a pastor say one time that January is a good time to fast because we all have a few extra pounds to lose after the holidays. But that's not helpful fasting if that's your real motive for doing it. Now, if you're fasting for dietary or health purposes, then say so, right? That's fine. I've heard people say that that's a way that they've been helped to do intermittent fasting. That's the, the craze now, right? But if you're doing it to lose weight, don't pretend it's being done out of devotion to God then. And now we get back to the very last verse of our study this morning, verse 38. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. So last week I mentioned that Simeon has been said by some to have been the first Christian hymn writer. You remember after he uh, saw the baby Jesus and he had been promised by the Holy Spirit that he wouldn't die until he saw the Lord's Messiah, the Christ and he got very excited, and he poured out a, a song or a psalm kind of a praise or a, um, or a doxology, you could call it. And, uh, and so some people have said, well, he was really the first Christian hymn writer. Well, if he was the first Christian hymn writer, then Anna was certainly the first Christian witness. Although at the birth of Christ, the shepherds were in on the excitement, Scripture does not record that they went and told anyone else after that. But Anna began to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. As we consider this last verse, may we ask ourselves, how did Anna know who were the ones waiting for the redemption of Israel? If she specifically spoke to them, how did she know who they were? Well, she knew because she was hanging out at the temple all the time. She must have had many conversations and as one has made many conversations with people, you begin to learn about what drives them, what they're passionate about. And the same is true at church. You will find out, if you have not found out already, that in the church there are many people with many different passions. And usually that's a good thing. Um, but some people are always excited and looking up. And you know who they are, right? The Christians who are always like, Jesus is coming. I know he's coming. He's coming soon. And Janelle's dad, Jim, was that way. 
He, he was a guy who was always thinking about Jesus' return. And he always had a sparkle in his eye. You could just sense joy and expectation he had because of his faith. And if there is possible to be anything opposite of a sparkle in the eye, I've seen that too. I've seen it uh, both ways. People super excited and people that you're not sure what, if they've got any will to live at all. So which are you? Are you expecting like Anna and like Simeon? Are you devout and awaiting the final return of Christ? We have so much to be excited about, don't we? Let us be witnesses of Christ as Anna and Simeon were. She only saw a baby and testified about him. We have the gospel accounts, and we know of his death and resurrection, and so we have every more reason to share with others about who Jesus is. So, just as a reminder, in case you have to remember in a short way, how do you tell someone about their need for the Savior? Here, here's a quick way to do it. And you've probably seen many different methods and ways to do it. But basically, first thing you need to do is let them know that there's a problem. That God has a holy law, and that if you're violating his holy law, then you're under his wrath. And you will be under his eternal wrath unless there's a way out for you to escape his wrath. And then you can say, do you know how God provided a way so you don't have to have his wrath fall on you for the sins that you've committed? And then you can tell them how Jesus came and he died on the cross so that people could put trust in him for their sins. And he was raised from the dead as a promise to us that there's eternal life. And for the first encounter with someone, you may just want to keep it that simple. And if they have more questions, then you, you might have more conversation with them. But people come to Christ very simply sometimes. Um, I, I shared a clip with a, f- a few people a week or two ago, and last week in church I was talking about the guy on the cross that looked at Jesus and said, remember me in your kingdom. And it was Alistair Begg who was talking about it, and he said something along the lines of, you know, um, this guy got to heaven that day, and, and no one asked, can you explain to me the, the doctrine of justification by faith? Can you explain this, or you can explain that? You've got to pass a test to get in. No, he just simply believed. He looked at Jesus. Jesus said, today you'll be with me in my kingdom. How do we explain that? Well, he didn't have the full gospel presentation. Well, he didn't say a sinner's prayer. Well, he didn't have an altar call. Look, If you want to lead your friends to Christ, your family to Christ, you don't need to... Sometimes we feel like, oh, if I don't know the whole thing, um, I don't know as much as so-and-so, and and they're good at explaining, I'm not good at explaining. You don't have to know everything. You, You tell them what you know, and you tell them what they need to know, and then if the Lord draws them to himself, then you bring them along to church, and you say, okay... Now you've got to come and learn more and, and learn how to live out this life, but all you need to know to be saved is that Jesus died for your sins so that your relationship with God could be repaired, that you would no longer be under his wrath, and that you could be restored and have hope for eternal life. We could all share that, can't we? And so Anna, there she is, and she starts telling people. She starts sharing with others. Immediately upon seeing the baby... Let us glorify God together and let us give thanks and speak to him, of him to all the people we can. And so as we, that's all I have this morning. It's a little shorter, but let's 
Let's be thinking about that as we go through the doors this morning. I've been at churches before that had something like this outside as you're walking out the door. You're now entering the mission field or something like that. And that's something to keep in mind, that every time we leave the church, we're going to encounter all kinds of people who need Jesus. And so we have, each of us, a personal mission to do that. So let's pray together, and then we'll we'll have a song together again, and and, uh, we'll be dismissed a little early this morning. Lord, I thank you for your good word, and you are a good God, and you've provided a good salvation. Lord, I pray that as we look at the simple gospel, we would remember that we don't need to overcomplicate it to share it with others. And Lord, as we grow to know you better, we, of course, we'd want to know you better. We want to understand your word better. We want to understand concepts like justification by faith alone. But Lord, let us remember that to present the gospel to others, we can keep it simple. That you, by your Holy Spirit, can draw men to yourself in a way that we can't even understand. Lord, let us not be reliant on some... Uh, eloquence that we might think we have or some argument we think we could make with the unbelievers but lord i pray that we would trust in a simple way the truth of the gospel that we would present it and and think like paul i'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of god to everyone who believes lord let us have that simple faith in the gospel let us be willing to share it my lord We all need help. We all need your empowerment to do this. We need maybe to get away away from our shyness or we need to get out of our comfort zone, Lord. Would you help us to do it? Would you help us to grow in your faith, Lord? Help us to know your word better as we study as believers so that when unbelievers do come into our lives, we know what to say. May we rely on you entirely, Lord. May we remember that it is in Christ alone. Christ alone. And we're so thankful, Lord, with great gratitude and with pleas for your mercy on our lives, Lord. We prepare to leave and go into the mission field together. May you provide us the opportunities and may we be willing to step up to those opportunities to share your love with others. In Jesus' name, amen.